The scripture this morning comes from the book of 1 John, beginning in chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and for not only ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the precious word of our Lord. I was 24 years old and a student at the University of South Carolina. I had uh, graduated from college and then gone on to uh, uh, teach school for a year and then went to uh, grad school at the University of South Carolina. Something happened in my life there that forever changed me. Um, you see, when I was 15 years old, I came to faith in Christ. And as a 15-year-old, uh, though I had grown up in church, I was in church because Dad was a pastor every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night, every time there was a revival service, I was there. I did not realize my own personal lostness until I was 15. And that night, on a Tuesday night, I realized that, and that night, I trusted Jesus as my Savior. I, I'll never forget that. I, it was so real in the Spirit, so convicting that night. But I did not um, read the Bible. I, I did not pray on my own. I honestly lived for the highs of a great Sunday morning service or a great Sunday night service or a great Wednesday night service, there wasn't a personal walk with God that followed my 15-year-old uh, conversion. Um, it did not happen. So I go away to college, and when I do, I, um, as a college student, don't do any crazy, stupid things, but I also don't grow in my walk with the Lord. I attend church every Sunday morning, but I am just coasting in college. I graduate college, teach school a year, end up in grad school, and I remember getting to this place of realizing that what happened when I was 15 has not been adequately appropriated into my life. It's not taken root and... Uh, I remember being in my apartment in Columbia, South Carolina, staring up at the ceiling and saying to God, God, I don't know who you are or what you're up to, but I know I need you. That was my simple cry out to him. It was my simple prayer. And when I said those words, I don't remember sensing anything amazing with that, but it was an invitation from a friend that brought me to a church 
that was growing and dynamic and the Lord was blessing and moving and I began to attend that church and God began to work in me and for the first time in my life, I picked up my Bible and started to read it for myself. And I had no idea how starved spiritually I was, how hungry I was for the word and I couldn't get enough well, I would go to church to uh, the 11 a.m. service. They had three morning services like we do. And I would go to the 11 a.m. I'd get there early just so I could get a seat because it was super crowded. And, and there were th this couple, this very kind couple would come out. And they would, uh, uh, from that 11 a.m. service and uh, uh, before it, and they would turn around and look at me and sit, see me sitting alone. And they would say, did you go to Sunday school this morning? And I would say, no. And they say, we'd love for you to join us. And they did that week in, week out, week in, week out, until finally uh, I decided to join them. I walked into a room of hundreds of singles, probably 300 singles in that room, and there were round tables set up everywhere. There was a sign on each table, and that was your age. That's where you sat. So I sat at the 24-ish table, and I remember sitting there and the singles pastor saying some things, and then we all began to uh, talk uh, at that table. And it was the first time in my life that I rubbed elbows with people who had struggles like I did, who were 24 and doing life, and some were in grad school, and some in med school, and some in different places, and I realized that, that I could do life alongside someone else. When uh, toward the end of that year, God began to call me into ministry, I fought that and I finally uh, said yes. And when I knew that one day I would pastor a church, I said, I will pastor a church where people do life together. I have no desire to pastor a church where a bunch of spectators come and they hear great music and hear hopefully a, a decent sermon and they uh, enjoy whatever it is that happens in a room in the large. I will pastor a church where small matters as much or more than large. I will pastor a church where life is done uh, in, in the ditches together and where people know one another. And that has been my dream and been my vision uh, ever since. And here at Grace, that's called life groups. And so this morning, we're talking about life groups, but we're uh, obviously, as we always are in God's word today, and we find ourselves in a tiny little letter written by John, and John deals with an issue that's ongoing in the church in that day. And the issue that's ongoing in the church in that day is uh, 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 where a group of people who started with Christ and started with this new thing called Christianity decided that they didn't quite believe it. As a matter of fact, they completely pulled off of Jesus being the Son of God, of Jesus dying and resurrecting and began even to deny that they had a problem with sin. They became known as successionists, and they pulled out from the church, but they had their organized preachers who would travel to churches and try to draw people out. 
draw these people out. And in so doing, they created and wreaked havoc in those churches. And John, who is now quite old, writes a letter, not to one church, it's a circular letter. These three are to circulate among churches, pass this around and around and around and around uh, so that everyone can read. And what he does is to call out these heretics. Uh, what is the problem? It is self-deception. That is the problem that, that they have. Self-deception, Peg O'Connor writes, in psychology today is often easy to recognize in others, but far more difficult to recognize in ourselves. With ourselves, she says, we lack perspective. One, uh, when you think of self-deception, one version of it is denial. Uh, somebody who denies a reality that people all around them can see, but they refuse to see. They are self-deceived. Uh, she defines self-deception as a set of practices and attitudes that hinders a person from making a reliable assessment of their situation. And so John is going to answer this problem of self-deception, and here's what he says. We all have a problem. It's called sin, and God has an answer, and it's called fellowship. We all have a problem. It's called sin, and God has an answer, and it's called fellowship. So let's jump into three lies, three truths that John uses to answer them, and you'll discover uh, perhaps some self-deception that might be crawling and creeping around in your own life. The first lie, I can hang with God and the world at the same time. This is the message John writes in verse 5. We have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So when John writes that God is light, in order to understand anything written by John, you need to read all of John. That means John the gospel, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, that gospel, and then these three letters and the book of Revelation. He wrote all of it. And when you look at it, we discover that with John, light equals life. The metaphor of light is life. In other words, we could say that statement, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. We could say God is life and in him is no death at all. God is life and in him is no death at all. You say, is that who God really is? Well, I would just say to you, if you still believe in 2021 that one day God decided to step out and by his spoken word, he didn't need any Play-Doh in hand to make anything. No, simply by his spoken word, he spoke and life came into being. If his very words exude life, then his very essence is life. Amen? He's life. And in him is no death at all. He's light. And in him is no darkness at all. This is why Jesus' death is so extraordinary. Why? Because God in human flesh died. But the reality of his death is completely counterintuitive to who God is. This is why Jesus on the cross would say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he, God, made him Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's why it was dark the day Jesus died. Darkness filled the earth for three hours. 
So what is the lie? Verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. The word fellowship means close relationship. So if you say, hey, I'm in a close relationship with God, but I'm living in sin, you're not in a close relationship with God. You say, ouch, that hurts. It's God's word. I'm just the messenger. Right? I'm just telling you what God said. I have a close relationship with God and a close relationship with my girlfriend who is an unbeliever and we have sex whenever we want to and do whatever we want to. You don't have a close relationship with God. No. You cannot walk in light and darkness at the same time. I have a close relationship with God and I also cheat on my taxes every single year. No, you don't. You have a close relationship with your accountant, but not with God. I have a close relationship. I could keep going, couldn't I? I could keep going. I could keep saying all of these things. And the reality is we're self-deceiving. We're like, oh, I could cherry pick that sin or this and do this and do that. The alcoholic who says this will be my last drink is deceived. The workaholic who says I have to work 60, 70 hours a week to get the job done is deceived. The couple whose marriage is still struggling, but one or the other says, no, we don't need any help. We'll figure this out on our own is self-deceived. What is the alternative? John continues, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from from all sin. So to walk in the light is to have fellowship with God. He is light, and he is life, and it is to have fellowship with him. And when you walk in the light, what do you do? Uh, somebody say, some of you may say, but I'm so scared to walk in the light. I just don't want to come to God with everything that I am and all that is wrong with me and all that is messed up. But he already knows, doesn't he? He knows it all. He knows you, and he knows the motives behind what you do. Like, he knows us so well. So the reality is that we need to come to him with all of it. Uh, just, Just like me on the sofa, that simple prayer, God, I don't know who you are or what you're doing, but I know you, I need you in my life. That was all I could articulate at that point, but, but he knew, didn't he? Wherever you are, that it just means to come honestly before God. And to walk in the light is to fellowship with one another, to have a close relationship with brothers and sisters in, the, in Christ. And something remarkable happens. The fact that it's in the present tense means that those who walk in the light still sin. Any of you sin this week? If you say no, you're self-deceived. Back to... Uh, Back to the lie and the truth, right? We still sin, but don't try to hide that fact from God. Uh, those people walk in the light with him and experience his ongoing forgiveness and his ongoing cleansing for their sins. I would ask you, who knows your struggles? Who is it on planet Earth who knows your faults? and knows how you struggle? We have five measures here that we use to determine, are we doing our job? Our job isn't determined by how many seats are how many seats are filled. No. No, that's not our job. That's how, you know, people who are doing concerts, that's how they determine if they do their job. Our job isn't determined by that. Our job is determined by uh, are we making disciples of people who walk closely with the Lord? So one of our measures is uh, people here look across at others weekly in fellowship and accountability. 
So I would say if you're married, your first person who can help keep you accountable is your husband or your wife. You may say, oh, but I'm scared. If my wife knew what I struggled with, if my husband only knew what I deal with, Howard Hendricks, the great professor at Dallas Theological Seminary for many, many years, tremendous man, wrote uh, 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 prolifically and uh, phenomenal man. Hendricks said he had been married for about 10 years when he had struggled with all of these things and he thought, there's no way, there's no way I could ever tell my wife this stuff. He said, finally, I, I just sat down with her one day because I couldn't stand it anymore. And I looked at her and I said, you know, I just need to tell you I, I've been struggling with. And he listed whatever he had been struggling with. And he, he said, I just waited. And she looked at me and she said, I've known that for 10 years. <laughs> no surprise, right? She lived with the man. She knew. He just somehow thought he was fooling her a tad better uh, than he really was. So I would say to you, if, if you need a tool, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, we have some in Next Steps, this marriage journal, absolutely remarkable. Great questions, great questions. If you ask uh, these questions every week with your spouse, is there any unconfessed sin, conflict, or hurt that we need to resolve and or seek forgiveness for? Wow, that'll clean you up on the rag, right? It's like taking a, a, a marital bath at least once a week. And I recommend, then here's such a positive, good one. What is a dream, craving, or desire that has been on the forefront of your mind? It's a good question. How can I pray for you this week? What is one thing I can do for you this week? Great stuff here. I recommend Life Group. Obviously, we're wearing the T-shirts. We so recommend that. Lie number two, I don't struggle with sin. If we say we have no sin, verse eight, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. All right, so, so these heretic preachers were circulating saying, eh, you know, sin's not a deal. Sin's not a deal. Does that exist today? Oh my goodness, does it ever? Does it ever? I have tried repeatedly to unsubscribe from the North Carolina Council of Churches emails and they sent them yet again this week. Yet again, what are they about? This week, their theme was LGBTQ rights and how we as churches ought to advance those. The North Carolina Council of Churches. Oh, why? Sin doesn't exist, right? Sin doesn't exist. This is prevalent in our culture today. We don't like to hear that sin's a deal. But if you look at this few verses, the word sin shows up a lot. Romans 3.23 class says for what? All right, so that's a little weak. We'll try that one more time. For what? All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Martin Luther said the recognition of sin is the beginning of salvation. The recognition of sin is the beginning of salvation. Sin's a real deal, isn't it? And yours truly struggles with it. I do. I was on sabbatical, it was week two, so I'm gonna be transparent here with the whole lot of you and whoever is watching uh, on YouTube and Facebook. I was at the Cove for a personal spiritual retreat, much needed. It was after evening one that I realized 
that I was self-deceived and I had no idea how strongly pride was reigning in my heart. As a matter of fact, I, when I got back to my room and realized it, I pulled out some prayer prompts that I've used before from John Owens, a Puritan, and I began to read through those. And it was so revealing of the ugliness of my heart that I was literally in my room on the floor with computer open praying through those prompts. Have you ever had a time of confession either with the Lord or with someone else to where that when it was over, there was this sense of release and relief like the weight lifted? It was that for me. And God had revealed this pride that, get, that just sat there unnoticed by me, this awful pride. And so I shared it with Wendy and, and um, shared it with, uh, I have a couple of men who hold me accountable and shared it with one or two of them and, uh, and then went about the rest of the sabbatical just praying, Lord, don't, don't let me be so self-deceived again and that kind of thing. And so it was the last Sunday of sabbatical and I kind of can't believe I'm telling you this, but it's true and it happened uh, and I'm your pastor. Maybe after today, I still will be. It was the last Sunday of sabbatical, um, and I went alone to a church in Spartanburg of a great friend of mine, or not a great friend, a friend of mine. Uh, he and I did our doctoral work together, same cohort. I haven't seen him since then, and uh, we connected during that time. His church has boomed and growing. It's an amazing church. And so I show up unannounced, and I, I worship, and it's a phenomenal worship service. They're doing a great job down there. It's a massive, uh, it's just much larger than us. They're, 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 you know, when your lobby is called a concourse, that's something, right? So the lobby's bigger than this worship space right here. Beautiful, just amazing. And so I go up to DJ after, and I'm like, DJ, I'm like, Jerry, I can't believe you're here. And so we talk a little bit, and then he goes to greet guests, and I head on out. And those of you who know me know that I don't walk anywhere slowly. I just don't. I don't know how. I go in full stride, always. I mean, my family will say, we're back here somewhere, you know, slow down. So I'm leaving in full stride, leaving when, boom, a window appeared. I smacked it. I'm telling you, when I say I ran into it, it reverberated down the concourse. And this woman who's standing by the door, you know, that you walk through, looked at me and said, are you okay? And I lied and said, yes. And slid to my left and walked out the door. And I remember saying, no lie, dear God, I thought I was humble. Like, is this what it takes? And so I'm walking to the truck when all of a sudden I feel warm coming down my nose. It's blood. Like I'm bleeding in the parking lot of mega church pastor I did my doctorate with, and I think I'm humble. And then I'm like, just get to the truck. Just get to the truck. And so I'm beelining to the truck, right, walking faster. I get there. I get uh, Kleenexes out. I've got them on my nose. Like I'm bleeding so much, the Kleenexes are getting saturated. What happened is I looked this way to look at their amazing kid facilities. These glasses, tough glasses, 
took the, took the brunt of the blow, cut my nose, though, in the process, just ripped the skin. And so, so I'm sitting in the truck thinking I'm okay when here come two men. I'm like, no, <laughs> no, no. And so they come, and I roll the window down, and they said, are you okay? <laughs> I'm wearing glasses with a Kleenex under it, and it's red. <laughs> and I lied and said, yes, I'm fine. And they said... They started to ask me questions, and I was, as I was sitting there, I realized that they were going through concussion protocol. <laughs> Who am I? Where have I been? Where am I going? Like, they think I've done it big, and I'm thinking, is the window still in place? You know, because it was a massive, like, 20-foot wall of windows, and I nailed that thing. And so, they left. I FaceTimed Wendy, and she was like, like, I know, honey, right into the window. And I said to her, I thought I was humble. Like, like, humble and humiliated. I think you humble yourself, and then God humiliates you if you don't take care of that first. You know, and like, what in the world is going on? I text DJ later when I get back to the house, and I had to stop by gas. That was fun. And uh, I text DJ later, and he messages me back. He sends me a video message, and he's just chuckling through the whole thing because I'm an idiot, right? I know I made their staff meeting the next day. Like, I know. I know they grabbed that camera that's on that window. What is my point? My point is this. Number one, evidently there was pride still there. All right? That I clearly didn't see. Number two, um, God is gracious enough to plow me right into a window, right? And to say, deal. And thirdly, we're good at lying about real stuff in our lives. Every one of us is. So what do we do? Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. That's a good word, isn't it? To do what? Forgive us, clean us up. Confess is to say the same thing as one another. That's what the word means. So please hear me. I love you, church. I really love you. I hope you still love me. Um, it is to say the same thing as one another. You can never confess unless somebody else has told you it's sin. You say, who is that somebody? Either the Holy Spirit or a person he uses. Why? Because the word confess means to say the same thing as, one another, as another. Somebody has got to say to you, that's sin. And as soon as you hear it, either directly from the Spirit or the Spirit through another person, you're faced with a choice, aren't you? Do you continue or stop? A.W. Pink, the pastor, says it is not the absence of sin, but the grieving over it which distinguishes the child of God from empty professors. In other words, we're not a room full of sinless people, but we're a room full of people, hopefully, who see our sin and grieve when we do. So a life group is a confessing group of people grieved over your sin, grateful for your Savior, and graced with one another's fellowship. That's a life group. Don't go in there and pretend. Don't go in there and act like you got it all together. Nope, nope, not at all. And God is faithful and just. How can he be faithful and just in view of our sin? How? How is that possible? Like, How can he be faithful and just in view of our sin? He's faithful 
because um, Jesus died. And, and Jesus died in our place to, he's just because Jesus died. So what is he faithful and just to do? To forgive and to cleanse. To forgive means to cancel a debt and to cleanse is to clean us up. So when you come to God and you confess your sin, he forgives you immediately, but he also takes it out of the debit column and puts it in the credit. And Jesus' blood is what covers. Lie number three, I didn't sin then and I don't now. This is a pervasive lie in our culture. Sin is not a deal. If we say we have not sinned, present perfect tense, meaning I didn't sin then, I don't now, we make him a liar and the word is not in us. Wow. If you say sin's not a deal, then you're saying Jesus is a liar because he died for it. He's also a fool because he died for it if sin isn't a deal. David Jackman, British evangelist, said, we no longer call sin, sin. Adultery becomes having an affair. Theft is helping myself to the perks. Selfishness is standing up for my rights. The last thing we human beings will admit is that we sin. He said, we must not be surprised when the chickens hatched by atheistic philosophies come home to roost in terms of multiplying lawlessness and a society which will prove increasingly difficult to govern. Has anybody seen that in the last year and a half? But we must resist that drift with all our energy in our own lives, in our churches, and in our community. As Nietzsche proclaimed nearly 100 years ago, if God is dead, everything is permitted. We have a problem that Jesus came to take care of. So I want to ask you, what is your sin problem? What are you lying to yourself about? Will John have an answer for this third lie? First uh, John 2, uh, verses 1 and 2, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins. What is an advocate? It's one who speaks up for the accused, either as a friend or in a court of law. It means both. So I'm just going to venture out a bit and say, these are words I think Jesus might use as your friend when you sin. Listen. And perhaps as you listen, you're thinking of a sin that's as recent as your drive to church this morning or as last night. What might Jesus say as your friend? He's advocating on your behalf to the Father. Father, I've been down there. I know the temptations. I know how people dress. I know how easy it is to get caught up in the world. I faced down every temptation. I did the heavy lifting. I was tempted like they are. 
in every way without sin. Does it occur to you that more times than you know, he has advocated on your behalf in your awful and even repetitive sin? Hmm. How about he is the propitiation? That's like a defense attorney. Father, what they did is wrong, but you had a plan to send me to right the wrong. I stand before you today, the one who died in their place for their sins. I am the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice. Look on me. Look, Father, on me. And see that my blood covers them. Our greatest problem is sin. And our greatest need is friendship. Fellowship with God and fellow strugglers. So let me ask you a question. Do you know Jesus as your personal Savior? Meaning, have you ever trusted him to forgive you and become your advocate and your propitiation? If you haven't, you can. And he will save you today. You say, Jerry, how do I do that? A simple prayer. Oh, Jesus, I know I am a sinner and I know I am lost and my sin separates me from you. Today, I ask you to forgive me, to save me from myself and my sin. I trust you as my Savior. And just like that, He'll come to you, amen? And he'll cover your sin and save you. Are you struggling alone? Meaning no one to help? Like I was between the ages of, of 15 and 24? Is your marriage not good, but you're pretending it is? Is the habit really an addiction? Is the secret sin feel like it's oozing out? Are you lying to yourself? Let the Holy Spirit convict and confess, meaning agree with him however small or big it may be. Here at Grace, there's no fail-proof way 
to make disciples. Why? We're all sinners trying to help others, right? But we've landed on life groups. That's what we've done. And we want you to be in one. And we want you to grow. And we want you to be loved. And we want you to love. And you stumble. We just want somebody there to catch you. That's why they exist. And that's why that we'll talk about them. It goes all the way back. To me as a 24-year-old and to God doing a work that only he could do. So we're gonna end our time commissioning our life group leaders who are in the room. We did this in the early service, have multiple life group leaders then. If you're a life group leader in the room, would you stand right now all over the building? So you look around and you see leaders all over this room. We're grateful for you. Thank you for your ministry, your role in the lives of people is absolutely key. If you're in here and your life group leader is standing, I know you're grateful for him or her or them. They stand in between you and, and the Lord. They, they love you. They, they want the best for you. And we have, I think in our church at this point, around 70 of them, groups. So let me lift you up. Lord, I pray for these men and women who stand here right now, that they would, as they launch this new semester and sign covenants this week, that just show how serious we, we take life group and how we want to do life well together. Lord, first of all, would you protect them and would you bless them for their ministry? I pray that your grace would abound to them. Lord, I pray that they would be used by you to, to create an honest, open environment in their groups that is informed by truth of your word. And Lord, I pray that we, as we grow as a church, would grow small as we grow large. And um, whatever you have, we trust you in that but I know that it is your heart that we grow in our walks with you. And then, Lord, I pray for those in this room who aren't in such a group and who need that. And oftentimes it is a wife insisting to a husband or a husband insisting to a wife. And Lord, bring that couple together, first of all, and bring them together in a group, and may you bless them. And, and as they plug into a new group, however imperfect that group may be, Lord Jesus, we love you, and I pray this in your strong name. Amen. If you're a life group leader who has space, you're free to head to, or if you're serving in the courtyard, you're free to head that way now. Adrian.